Well, today we are continuing uh, just a little mini-series I put together to kick off the year here, looking at um, what we're referring to as big lessons and small packages. And we're going to look at another kind of overlooked, rarely kind of dig into type of book, the book of Jude. Now, Jude doesn't get read very often, studied very often, and for a lot of people who have tried to read Jude or have gone through it, they've probably been a little mystified by what they're finding in this book, because it is a little bit different. It is only 25 verses, but it is dense in those 25 verses. In fact, as we go through it today, it may feel a little bit like you're back in school as we go through this. Now, when you're back in school, there are some classes I'm sure you did very well at, and, and some classes you struggled at a little bit. You know, I, I remember, for example, when I was going to high school back in BC, they require you to take French up to grade 11. And I hated French. Not French, you know, not that part of our country, but the language of studying it. And I remember the last day of grade 11 French, I had this incredible joy in my heart. It was, it was this experience that is burned into my memory of no longer ever having to do French. Although I did do some French afterwards, because I see I hired an associate one time who was from, well, from Eastern Canada and was French. And so in my very broken, terrible, terrible French, I would try and speak to him in French. And it just irritated him. He rolled his eyes. He had no clue what I was saying because my pronunciation was, was just absolutely awful. Uh, anyways, he moved back to Montreal and he's happy back with his, his French families back over there. Some of my favorite classes, however, I was the best at recess and I was excelling on my spare. I was very good at those sorts of classes. <laughs> but as you think back to your time, perhaps, in school, and which ones list as your favorite and not so favorite, quite often it can come down to the type of instruction that you receive. It makes a big difference. The teacher, the content, the type of instruction that you received. And, and similar things happen when we're preaching. Uh, you know, for the first, this is the third week of 2020 now, and, and we're committed to expository preaching here at West Meadows, which means unpacking Scripture and, and pulling out the meaning of Scripture that can be applied to our lives today. But there's different ways of doing that. For example, the first week of the year, I did sort of a thematic expository sermon where we expounded upon Scripture relating to 12 gifts you can give yourself to, to grow spiritually and, and grow in relationships with God and one another throughout the year. The next week, last week, I did sort of an expository narrative style of preaching where we looked at the story of Philemon and saw from that story an example, a demonstration of not just how to know things about God, but actually live those out and apply them in the life around you. Well, today we're going to do a different one that some are going to love and some may not like as much. Today we're going to do what's referred to as sort of a, a verse-by-verse systematic explanation of a passage, of a reading. And as we walk through Jude in this fashion, this style may feel a bit like being back in school. Maybe a class you excelled at, maybe maybe a class you didn't. But I think a lot of us are also going to feel like we're not just back in school, but also that we're missing some prerequisites for this class. Because you see, Jude assumes some things about his audience. Before we even open up and look at the verses, he, we have to understand he assumes that his audience is very familiar with some traditional Jewish writings. A lot of us have probably never heard of them or definitely read some of the ones that he references. Jude also assumes that we have a deep knowledge of Old Testament history and Old Testament historical figures, 
which some of us probably have a bit of an understanding, and, and some of us perhaps have heard names but not quite understand all the stories around them. But Jude assumes that these are familiar things for his audience. And as we go through this, and I was studying this week, a historical quote, speaking of, of history, a historical quote came to mind that I think helps sort of prime our minds for Jude's approach in this letter. And it's a famous quote from Winston Churchill, who said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. You've probably heard that quote before. Those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. That will be relevant as we look through certain parts of Jude here today. And so, by the time we finish our walk through this letter, I hope to have demystified some of the parts of it for you, but also give you a, a sense, give you sort of a revelation of how Jude is encouraging the followers of Jesus Christ that he's writing to, to contend for the faith of which they are a part. So, let's begin our journey here today by asking the very first question we need to look at, who is Jude anyways? Well, first of all, to understand who Jude is, we need to know that Jude is sort of shorthand for the name Judas. Now, in the New Testament, there are three Judases. We know the one, there's, there's the obvious Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus and then went off and, and, and committed suicide and killed himself out of remorse. And perhaps because of his example is the reason that people said, ah, I'm going to call myself Jude from now on. I don't want to be aligned with that Judas. And so Jude, we also have another Jude who is a disciple of Jesus. And I feel sorry for him because he was always like, my name's Judas, but, but not that Judas. He was also referred to sometimes as Thaddeus or Jude within Scripture. But then we have a third one. And I don't think that the person who wrote the book of Jude is the Apostle Jude because he doesn't identify himself in that fashion. And quite often those who were followers of Jesus, like kind of eyewitnesses, would make mention of those things. And he doesn't. So there's, the leading belief is that there's a third Jude who actually wrote the book of Jude. And we read about him in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. When the crowd is speaking of Jesus, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Jesus, Mary's, uh, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And the book of Jude opens by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. You see, it's accepted, widely accepted, that the author of this book is the brother of James, who is the brother of Jesus. Therefore, Jude, the brother of James, was also the brother of Jesus. Now, many of you thought this was just some obscure guy who wrote this book that made its way into the Bible. We're actually reading the words of one of Jesus' brothers, none of whom believed in him when he walked the earth and was, and was ministering, but then all came to a faith in him following his death and resurrection and went on to have powerful ministries and leadership roles in the church. Now, we know who wrote the book of Jude, but we don't quite know exactly who he wrote to, although we can know some things about them. Number one, we can know that they were of Jewish descent because of all the historical Old Testament and literary references that he makes that he assumes that they know. But at the same time, we can assume that they are Jewish Christians because he speaks of them as being in Christ. As we finish verse 1 and 2 in the introduction, it says he's writing to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. See, now Jude's writing to these people, and he had planned to write them a letter. But as we see in the next couple of verses here, he became aware of a serious problem that was facing this church community. And so he postpones what he had planned to write to them, and he writes them this brief 
very pointed letter instead. He had planned to write them a longer, more detailed letter about the wonders of salvation that they all share together, but something more important came up, and he thought, i got to address this now and immediately. And so verse 3 and 4, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about your salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals who... whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Before the letter is done today, he will explain how that audience, how we as followers of Christ today are to contend for the faith. But for now... To start off with, Jude is going to go into great deed to explain why. Why they must do so. And we see some of the reasons already. He'll expound upon this even further, but he says right here already, there are people who have slipped in among you, into the membership of your church, who are twisting the teachings of Jesus Christ. In particular, the teachings about grace that leads to salvation. There's people who have come in among you who are saying, hey, we're forgiven. We've all got the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Grace covers all, so let's, why do we need to stop sinning? God's grace covers all. His his sacrifice covers all our sins. We can just go do whatever we want, is the message that slipped into the church. Just a short time ago, uh, you probably heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was famously quoted as, as writing a long Um, article about this, where he refers to this as what they call cheap grace, preaching forgiveness without the requirements of repentance, without the requirement of transformation, turns the grace of God into cheap grace. It's a counterfeit doctrine that must be battled against. And when you believe this, as they were trying to promote within this church, they therefore have betrayed Jesus by rejecting his authority, by rejecting his teachings. And once you start to head down the road of going, we can do whatever we want, God's grace covers me, it's not a very big step beyond that to say, you know, is Jesus really the only way? Is Jesus the only truth? Is Jesus really the only life that we should be pursuing? And this is what has slipped into this church. And as history has shown, perhaps even in our own lives, if we look at our own personal narratives, History shows that those who seek after their own will in God's name do so to their own folly. But those who remain true to the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ save themselves and those around them. And in essence, Jude's letter is a warning. It's a warning to guard against those who try to twist God's truth in order to lead people astray. And it's also a warning to be vigilant to contend for the faith, to hold to your beliefs, to live out the truth of God's saving grace that we've come to know through the teachings of Jesus Christ is in essence what his letter is about. And Jude leads the way in describing why this is so critical as he enters into a longer explanation in the bulk of his letter where he talks about how these teachers are dangerous and they need to be avoided at all cost. And thus begins the history lesson. As we find ourselves in verse 5, 
from verse 5 through to verse 16, Jude is going to provide two sets of three examples of Old Testament examples and their inevitable outcomes. We'll go through these fairly quickly because there's lots of stories behind the story here. And and if you know these stories and want to be refreshed on them, or if you're not familiar with them and want to read them yourself afterwards, I'm going to have the references for all of them at the bottom of the page. You can note those down and you can take a picture of them. And then in your your space and place time later this week, perhaps you can reference back to all these and read the detailed stories of each person in each account that he draws a parallel to here. So you'll see that up on the screen. But this first group of three that he talks about really do a good job of explaining the proverb. Proverb you've probably heard, you reap what you sow. Have you heard that before? You reap what you sow. For example, if you plant corn, don't expect to reap watermelons. But if you sow laziness, you can expect to reap poverty, kindness, friendship. If you sow the hokey pokey, you will be able to turn yourself around, is what you will sow, right? You get the idea. Like, there's a cause and effect that happens in you, right? So, in these examples, we'll see also that in the Old Testament, there's lots of cases of people who sowed rebellion, and they ended up reaping God's divine justice. First example he uses, the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, a group of people who God had promised to deliver to the promised land, and they are in slavery, but he rescues them from slavery, he provides for them, he protects them as they wander through the wilderness, but what happens? They start to grumble. They start to grumble and they stop trusting in him. And God says, you know what? If you've lost trust in me, you've lost faith in me, you're not going to enter this promise that I've given you. Verse 5. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Second example that he gives is of rebellious angels, those who have been imprisoned for challenging God's authority. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwellings, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. You might be thinking, what? What, what is that about? Well, this is where our familiarity with ancient Jewish literature that he assumes the audience knows starts to come in handy. And what it's believed he's referring to, the fall of Satan and his angels that you can read about in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, where they were not content with the positions and the authority that God had given them. They wanted greater authority. They wanted more than what he was giving them. So they rebelled against God and challenged him and found themselves now awaiting eternal punishment, is what we read about in those verses. And then the third example that he gives us here in verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah, a well-known story that is synonymous with sensual lawlessness, as it says in verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of the eternal fire. Three examples. The nation of Israel wandering in the desert who lost faith. Rebellious angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, who divorced God's way of life and morality for their own. But he's not done. He actually wants to drive home the point with a story that few of us have probably ever heard before, and I'm willing to get probably some of us have never heard before. Verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn, uh, condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Now, don't try flipping back in the Old Testament to find this story, because you won't find it, which is why a lot of us are not familiar with it. What he's referring to here is a story that is found in a, in a writing called the Testament of Moses which was very well known to the ancient Jewish culture and the Jewish Christian culture of the time that he's writing. Very unfamiliar to us, however. And, and here's the basis of the story. See, when Moses died, he wasn't allowed into the promised land, but he was buried in an unknown location. And according to this writing, the Testament of Moses, the archangel Michael was sent to guard his body, but the devil came to try to steal it. And so they entered into an argument, into a debate of such things. And so Michael, instead of rebuking the devil for such things, decided to yield to God's authority and trusted that God will look after it. Now you may wonder, why would Jude make reference to this? It's not part of the Bible. And what are we supposed to do with it that it's in our Bibles. Well, I want to remind you of something, that Jude was originally writing to a different culture than we exist in today. He was writing to a culture that was immersed in religious text, and that Jewish culture of the day, Jewish Christians of the day, Jesus, his own family, would have been familiar with the Hebrew writings that we understand as our Old Testament, but they also would have been familiar with these other writings. Now, ancient debates took place to decide what's going to make the cut, not make the cut for what we find in our Bible today. And this particular writing, the Testament of Moses, didn't make the cut, which means it's not inspired. It's not considered inspired by the Holy Spirit. But while it's not inspired, that doesn't mean it's not important. And Jude is not here trying to, trying to rally for this writing and saying this, this needs to be in our, in our literature. He's saying, you know what, this is something that was read. This is something that was well known. This is a writing that was respected amongst his original audience, and it can be used as a powerful example to make his point. Similar to earlier in my message today when I referenced Winston Churchill, he is not a saint of the church or, or an inspired messenger of God. When we quote people like C.S. Lewis and whatnot, today we understand, that's not scripture, it's not authority, but, but it helps me to understand scripture. Now people reading that, a manuscript of a sermon that references C.S. Lewis or Winston Churchill centuries from now may be confounded by that as well, just as we are when Jude references the Testament of Moses. He's not trying to say it's inspired, but he is saying it's relevant and it is important to the point he's trying to make. So Jude's reference is lost on us in this particular story. But it was very familiar to his audience, and it would have been a powerful illustration for them to hear from him. Because Jude is pointing out that the behavior of these corrupt teachers has ancient roots. This isn't new. This isn't the first time this has happened. The corruption that the church is experiencing under these leaders has ancient roots. And that these false teachers claim to have revelation from God, but what they're doing is not new. He sees this in verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these, these revelations they claim to have, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies like Sodom and Gomorrah. They reject authority like the nation of Israel wandering through the wilderness. And they heap abuse on celestial beings like the rebellious angels in the examples that he gave. You see, these people are claiming to have wisdom. 
They're claiming to have knowledge about spiritual things, and they're using this so-called knowledge to justify their actions. They're saying, it's okay. It's okay. God's grace covers all of our sin. Just keep doing what seems right in your own eyes. They're saying, yeah, you know, Jesus taught some really good things. So, so, so learn those. Be aware of those. And then, and then follow the ones that work best for you. And in the end, it'll all work out okay. But in truth, these sorts of teachings really find their roots in just carnal drives, just natural human instinct. People are doing their own will in God's name. And rather than saving them, it's actually leading to their condemnation. Because their rebellion leads to divine justice. So that's the first set of three examples that Jude gives about rebellion leading to divine justice. Connected to this is the second set of rebels that he's going to talk about. But there's a little bit difference here. The second set of rebels leads to divine justice, but also leads to the corruption of others. So in just one verse, in just one verse, he shows how the actions of one person can bring other people down. One person within the batch, one bad apple spoils the whole group. One person can drag the whole rest into the mess with them. This would be like somebody who wanted to help you cook a nice turkey dinner. And they have some, some new ideas, perhaps. And I don't just mean new recipes that are a little odd, like putting raisins and stuffing. I, you know, we can get around that, right? But I mean, like, they are determined to take a turkey, to stick it in the oven under the broiler on high for uh, 30, 40 minutes, and then serve it to you. You know if you cook a turkey that way, it's going to wreck every, everyone's get, everyone gets drawn into this. It's going to wreck everyone's turkey dinner, and it's probably going to lead to some divine justice in the bathroom later on, if you do that. Right? Everyone gets dragged in by one person's poor actions. So that's the example. He says this in verse 11. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for the prophet of Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Three examples of people whose evil actions didn't only affect them, but the larger community around them. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel's offering, and so he kills him. This leads to the building of a city where violence was rampant and just reigned. Judah's saying, watch your anger, watch jealousy, watch your actions in line with these things, because they lead to causing division. They cause pain for the family that meets in the church, and they can be divisive for generations to come. He gives the example of Balaam here being paid by Balak to curse Israel. And if you look at that reference that's on the screen there later, you'll see that he was paid to do this, but he wasn't able to do it. But he wasn't able to curse them, but instead he was able to corrupt the nation by convincing them to marry Moabite women, people from a different culture, from a different worshiping, uh, worshiping of different gods. And so Jude here is accusing the false teachers of, of valuing financial gain over their faith in the Lord and the well-being of the community. Because this leads the people of that community into immorality. And then the example of Korah, where Korah was rebelling against Moses and wanted to put himself in a priestly place amongst the nation. And God judges Korah and his entire household at the end of that passage. And so Jude here is accusing the false teachers of rejecting God, of sowing dissent, of, of going against God and his appointed leaders. 
And now he's on a bit of a roll with this, these one, two, three examples in this one verse. He now launches into a barrage of metaphors to talk about how dangerous these people are and how the futility of their efforts. And we see starting in verse 12, he says, These people are blemishes on your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualms. He's saying that they're like stains on a tablecloth when you come to potluck. When you have a celebration before we gather for communion and there's that blemish, there's that, there's that big stain on the tablecloth you can't take your eye off and you wish wasn't there, that's them. He's saying they're shepherds who feed only themselves. They don't care for unity within the body. They just care about themselves. They're like sheep in wolf's clothing. He says they're clouds without rain. They're blown along all day by the wind. That means, you see, they appear to have dry, be able to refresh a dry spirit. They have the looks of rain that'll come and and replenish a dry land, but they never do. Nothing ever happens. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They talk about fruitfulness. Look at all the good things that'll come from this. This is for your benefit, but there's actually no fruit. Nothing ever to show for their beliefs and their actions. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up in their shame. They just constantly, like a wild sea, churn up rubbish. Nothing but rubbish gets churned up in the waves. They're wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. They're just a flash of light, like a falling star. You see it for a second, and then it just disappears into oblivion. There's nothing lasting. And so then Jude ends his accusations. He ends his history lesson with a final statement. Again, with another unfamiliar text to us. By quoting a prediction that's found in the book of First Enoch. First Enoch, a guy who was the great-grandfather of Noah. A guy who we read about in Genesis chapter 5, of whom it said he walked with the Lord and then he was no more. Meant to be a belief that he, that he ascended into heaven without, without dying. But this is, again, another well-known, respected writing of that particular time that contained visions of the end days. And he says this in verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers. They are fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. Basically, you see, you know what? This prophecy is fulfilled in these moments. He says, you know what? God has never allowed the ungodly. God has never allowed those who harm his people. Those who try to scatter his flock. Those who twist his words for their own advantage. He has never allowed those people to go unpunished. And he's not going to start now. So do not be found in their company, even though they may be in your company within the walls of your church. And then he concludes this warning by taking off his professor hat, his professor of history and ancient literature hat, and he puts on his pastor hat now, and he encourages them. And he says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, In the last days there will be scoffers who fall after their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and they don't even have the spirit within them. 
He's saying, guys, don't be alarmed. There's trusted leaders that you know. There's, there, there's trusted, respected leaders in your midst. People like, like Peter and, and John and Paul and Jesus himself who spoke of these things in their own letters and their own teachings. This is not a surprise to us. We knew this was going to happen. This has happened in other places. The sky is not falling. God has not been thwarted by them. The church will not be destroyed and he will make it right. And so Jude has gone to great lengths to identify here for us the why. The why the church must contend for the faith. Essentially pointing out that the rebels who come in amongst this body and try to twist God's word for their own purposes only leads to divine judgment and to the corruption of the whole body. That's why we must contend for the faith. It just leaves one more question now. The question of how how are they to contend for the faith? What are they supposed to do about it? And in a similar manner, when we, here in 2020, whether in the body of West Meadows, a group we're part of in the community, somebody we watch on TV or listen to on a podcast, when, when, we, when we come across questionable teaching, when we see questionable actions in those leaders, how are we to respond? Well, one of the great helps that the book of Jude provides us is it lets you know that you don't have to be a scholar to be able to know if somebody's off base or not. See, look at his method. The method that Jude follows throughout this whole letter is to not directly attack the teachings. We've gone through most of the book already. There's not a single moment where he goes, well, let me tell you about grace. Let me tell you about God's love. That's not his method. He doesn't attack their teachings. He addresses their way of life. You see, Jude does not enter into any debate on their teachings. Rather, he focuses upon their character and their actions. And by observing their moral compromises, we already know they have bad theology. Which falls in line with what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come in with sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. How you know them? By their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew 7, 15. And this isn't just an issue from centuries ago. If you are around a church community long enough, you will eventually encounter people who seek to divide, people who seek to corrupt the body. I know this from personal experience all too well of the damage that those sorts of things going unaddressed can cause for individuals who lose their faith and leave a church. I know the damage firsthand it can do to the name of Jesus in a community when they hear about the garbage going on, the division that happens within a group. And I know about the, the ineptness of a church when they start to lose their eyes on the mission and start to look inward to fix the problems. As a pastor, I get a little overprotective when all of a sudden things start to threaten unity and integrity of the flock that God has entrusted to me. But here's what Jude says in response, a proper response to these situations. Verse 20. But dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, seeking and keeping yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. He says, before we can do anything that will last, we need to set a foundation. 
He tells them you first have to set a solid base and be firmly fixed upon that solid base. And that solid base, that foundation is the holy faith, which is the truth about Jesus Christ, known as the good news of Jesus Christ. The means of our salvation, which Paul tells us is Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, buried and raised from the dead on the third day. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Then, based upon that foundation that we bring ourselves under, we can start to build individually and as a church. We can build upon that through prayer. We can build through the love of God. You see, when we pray in the Holy Spirit, that provides us, the Holy Spirit among us and within us provides us comfort and conviction and counsel. It enables us to discern the false teachings from the true. When we build upon that foundation in the love of God, Jesus very simply said, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. If we're building upon the love of God, that means we are obeying the teachings that Jesus gave us. And then anticipating the day of his return. We anticipate the day that Christ will return, which helps us to stay unified and focused upon the means of our salvation, the mission at hand, and the future promise for ours, if we're founded upon the gospel. And then a final word of encouragement. To handle those who struggle who struggle with those sorts of things, with loving patience. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others who snatch them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. He's saying, remember, there are some people in your midst who will just honestly struggle with stuff. There are some people in your midst who will just honestly doubt some of these tenets of the faith. They're not evil, they're not mean, they're not being divisive. They're just honestly struggling. For those people who aren't trying to twist the word, who aren't trying to sow dissent, for those people, be tender. But be guarded that you don't allow yourself to get drawn into their sin. Be tender, but be guarded. Now, for us, as I conclude walking through this short letter in length, but definitely not in content, in message, I want to leave you today with three questions. Three questions to ponder as it relates to what we've covered in the book of Jude. First of all, do you have a foundation of your most holy faith? Another way to ask this question is, have you personally accepted a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the good news that all of us are sinners, separated from God because of our sin, but God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die and to bridge the gap between us, and if we would place our faith in his sacrifice if we would say that his death upon the cross was enough, nothing I can do, nothing of me, nothing in me, nothing I can earn, but a gift I can receive from him, that I then become a new creation. That becomes the foundation upon which we stand, the foundation of the most holy faith. Additionally, on this question, you may say, you know, I've done that. I, I have made that profession of faith. I've accepted that. I believe that, and I know I'm a new creation in Christ, but... I, I'm not sure I have the knowledge. I'm not sure I have the skills to continue to grow upon that foundation. Well, you know what? Tomorrow night, our foundations course is exactly what that's about. That's exactly what it's about. If you answer that way to this question, you need to be at the foundations course that starts tomorrow night. Secondly, have you allowed any questionable teachers into your life? This could happen subtly. It can happen innocently. 
There are some people who are so fluid and crafty with how they put words together, persuasive words and, and weaving scripture into things. But, but do their teachings match not only the word of God, but the heart of God? Are their actions and their lifestyles, are their attitudes honoring to God in themselves? Be careful of the podcasts you listen to. Be careful of the TV shows that you watch. Don't just listen to the words, but watch those people's lives. And then thirdly and finally, what does the fruit of my life reveal to others? Perhaps you've allowed yourself to be overly permissive with some sorts of attitudes towards sin. Maybe you've been overly critical of those who struggle and you need to be more tender with those who are doubting. Or does it reveal to the worshiping community among us and to the surrounding community among us, does the fruit of your life reveal the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ? Here's the final point I'll leave with you. How we live is the most reliable indicator of what we believe. How we live is the most reliable indicator of what we believe. I invite you, if you would stand with me as I pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the powerful words and small packages. I pray, God, that as we walk through this, this book that, that you saw fit to include within the scriptures you've given to us, that we would have an understanding of, of what Jude was saying, speaking, trying to reveal to his audience, and, and how that has relevance for us today still. I pray, Lord, that we would all build our lives upon the foundation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would strive to be grounded upon the gospel, that we would strive to pray in the Holy Spirit, and that we would stand in the love of God and as a demonstration to those around us. Amen.